Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books in Asian Studies channel. And today we are here with Dr. Chen Shuzhou, Assistant Professor of Cinema Studies in the History of Art Department and Cinema and Media Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Dr. Zhou, and welcome to our channel. Hi, uh, Victoria. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Cinema Offscreen, Movie Going in Socialist China, published by University of California Press in 2021. So it's it's really um, just hot out of the oven. And, you know, I'm very excited to, to, to have this interview. And, you know, before I start with the usual questions, I just wanted to, to ask you about you know, the introductory question about, you know, yourself and your work just to, to get to know you you better and the work you've been doing for, for so long. So, you know, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about how you came to this project, you know, what got you interested in the practice of going to the movies in socialist China? Sure, uh, I'm happy to share. In order to not make the story too long, I think I will start with my dissertation uh, from yeah. which the book developed. Uh, the book actually is quite different from dissertation, but uh, the story I'll, I'll begin about from about 10 years ago. I was doing coursework at Stanford. I was a PhD student in the East Asian Languages and Cultures Department at Stanford. And at that time, I was already interested in film. So I was taking film classes and reading a lot of psychoanalysis. I, I think it was a time when psychoanalysis psychological theory were pretty dominant in the film studies field as a whole. And my advisor at Stanford, uh, Wang Ban, he, he also has a, a very famous influential chapter on Chinese re- revolutionary cinema mm-hmm. from the book, uh, The Sublime Figure of History, that also uses a psychoanalytical framework to talk about how films like uh, Sound of Youth would kind of channel people's sexual desire through a process of sublimation toward revolution. But having read a lot of psychoanalytical theory, um, questions started to brew in my head because psychoanalysis combined with film studies, I often talk about how a film text constructs an ideal subject position for the viewers. It talks within the boundary of the filmic text, and it doesn't really engage with real audiences. So my question was, like, what about real audiences? When we're talking about Chinese revolutionary films and how they were supposed to work on people, how did them actually work? And those were the questions that, that really got me started. And make me think, okay, rather than reading theory and analyzing films, I should go talk to some uh, real audience members, get their perspectives. And there is an added relevance there because uh, I'm from China, my my family is still in China. So a lot of these um, audience members, they were my family. They were my grandparents and their generation, my parents and their generations. And growing up, I have heard some stories that my parents told me about going going to see the movies as a kid. So with that added like personal connection, I, I, I was extra motivated, I guess, to uh, just to look into it. And um, that ended up in my dissertation, uh, which was actually titled uh, Socialism Offscreen. There's a one-word difference. I started as socialism off-screen, and the focus of the dissertation was very much on 
understanding Chinese socialism by looking at the different identities assumed by Chinese film audiences. Uh, and then when it was time for me to uh, adapt my dissertation into a book, during my two postdocs at Stanford NYU Shanghai, I, I was quite unhappy with the framework of the dissertation. Uh, I remember my one of uh, my other uh, PhD committee member, Haiyan Li, and she was critical about me using the word like, complex in my argument. That's too vague. You can't just say socialism is complex. It doesn't tell people much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I struggled with the framework for a little bit, and I had some inspired moments, I would say, and I actually write about them in the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. So I won't go into details there. I want to encourage people to, to read a book. Uh, and then through the years, I, I, it gradually reframed, and um, the book you have today is um, the uh, end product. Oh, it's a beautiful end product. So, you know, as you just said, I really encourage everyone to, you know, get a copy and read it. Um, and, you know, it's um, it's definitely a very, very nice introduction to, you know, how the dissertation became became a book. And most of us, right, are at that stage still. So, you know, it's very inspirational to hear this, this type of, of, of story. Um, and, you know, it, it ended up having six chapters, uh, an introduction and a postscript. And it's also seasoned with illustrations and graphs and, you know, provides an examination of the experience of going to the movies in socialist China through the film material and emotional surroundings. And I found that very, very, very uh, captivating, right, to, to talk about the emotional surroundings uh, of the cinema. And the book investigates, uh, and I'll, I'll just quote here because, you know, I couldn't find better words than you did. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a short quote, right, that the book uh, investigates the history, experience, and memory of film exhibitions and movie going, while contextualizing contemporary Chinese memories of cinema, end of quote. So some of the central questions, uh, such as how were films shown and watched in relation to the political usage of, of cinema as propaganda are, you know, central to, to the question, as well as, you know, you're asking in the introduction, like, what were the institutions, the technologies and the strategies of exhibition? And, you know, when we're thinking about propaganda, we kind of have some sort of idea, but, you know, you, you have specific uh, details and, and very, you know, beautiful analyses that, that bring all of this together. And also, you know, one other question that the book poses is what kind of experience and memory of moviegoing were generated as China left the socialist legacy behind and entered an era of post-socialism? Um, so, you know, the, with this being being centered uh, center to the book and each chapter, um, for for each, each time these questions arrive, there's a brilliant answer to it. So, you know, for just to give the, the, the audience, our audience here, a sense of what's going on, I was wondering whether we could hear more about the core of the book and its theoretical framework um, as it offers great support for the entire manuscript. I I like how you went from the the specific questions and all the way to the theoretical framework. Uh, I will try. And I also think it's interesting um, that the questions you, you just very nicely recapped and I actually labeled them as my empirical questions in mm-hmm. my introduction. I said these are my empirical on the empirical level, these are the questions I want to ask in relation to uh, Chinese socialist experience of cinema, mm-hmm. which I actually hope to present as a case study 
for rethinking cinema and cinematic experience in more general terms. The way I see it, there is, and through through the development of this book, there has been this interesting dialectic between what I see as uh, China studies questions and film studies questions. The, these are not sophisticated uh, terms. I, just for me, I, I look at them this way. It doesn't mean these two fields are separate. Uh, but uh, if you recall, I mentioned uh, my dissertation started with socialism off screen, and now it's cinema off screen. Apparently, there is a shift there. And this shift had to do with my feeling of running into a dead end within studies of Chinese socialist cultures or within the China studies framework. So at that time, I felt there was just a little too much focus on questions of ideology, politics, propaganda. And when reception is discussed by scholars, it often also has to do with ideological positioning or whether the audience was, were they resistant to the messages? Were they welcoming the messages? Like how they were reacting to the, all the political conditioning. I'm sure the field has moved on from that already. uh, Same as I somehow moved on from that because it was just too binary of a framework to come up with new things to say. Mm -hmm. So I started to ask myself more film studies questions. There was like, pivot, right? And change the direction. And I started asking myself, how can my materials tell me something new about the process of exhibiting and watching films that shift the focus from socialism to cinema? And then I arrived at this framework, which is actually, I think, captured in this term cinema of screen. I use it as my theoretical framework meaning um, the investigation focuses on how cinema communicated and generated experiences through what I call off-screen interfaces. All these different elements present at film screenings that are not the film that's being shown. They can be the space, the environment, the atmosphere, uh, the material conditions the body gets in touch with. So all of these factors and then the God getting logic of the book became identifying all these different interfaces throughout the chapters. But the interesting thing is, once I settled on this framework, which seemed pretty film-centered, I realized that all the familiar questions about propaganda and reception can be answered with new light. And I can see socialism under new light as well. For example, I, I remember so in the introduction, I talked briefly about how I want to see socialist socialist culture not just not just as political culture, right? But media culture, as communal culture, as popular culture. So looking at it through all these different terms. And on the other hand, all these empirical details, they were also really, really crucial because it's only through the investigation of the specific histories of Chinese socialist um, film exhibition and the memories of it that I can use them to question assumptions and receive truth in film studies that sometimes is still quite Western-centered. So these very empirical details actually help me open up film theory for a more diverse understanding of what cinema is and what cinema was and what it could be. 
So, so in the end, there's a very, I think, productive relationship between these two sets of inquiries that, that there's some tension, but overall, I think it, there's something nice that, that came out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as I was reading the, the book, I also remember that the first interaction that my group of, you know, in college, my, my group of, of students, um, you know, we were just watching uh, the, the Chinese instructor was playing movies to us. And then the material conditions were so very important to the way we perceived Chinese cinema at a very early age and very, very early in our studies. And I was thinking that, you know, this, this, this approach that you're, you're proposing is very important you know, also to to students who are getting in contact first time with, with Chinese film, um, you know, to, to children or, you know, to adults or, you know, it, it's just a very, um, very important question or set of questions, better said, um, to, to ask, uh, of course, and, you know, your, your book uh, has specific questions, but, you know, outside of that, it made me actually think about my own uh, education and you know, kind of start conversations with with peers about this this material condition um, question that I think is is um, plays an important role in uh, our conceptualization in this case of socialism, post socialism, but also you know education, language study, and and so on. Uh, but I'll you know I'll stop with my digression and I'll just get back to the question. That's so good to know. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> sure, thank you. Um, so you know, actually, the the next question I, I had and you touched a little bit on it was about uh, methodology. And here I think mm-hmm. the book offers two perspectives, right? So one, um, and again, I'm, I'm I'm quoting here that of the institutions and individuals behind the formation of the exhibition interfaces and that of the audiences. End of quote. And in doing so, I think it brings together different types of research. And, you know, I was curious whether you could tell us a bit more about the methodology and the ways in which you brought together archival and memory research. Yeah, the methodology uh, that I ended up using, that was really driven by the questions that I was asking myself. Uh, coming from uh, East Asian languages and cultures, I actually had no formal training in either doing archival research or or doing uh, interviews or memory memory research. And right, the focus of uh, ELC departments is usually more uh, close textual analysis. So I I just I started on this path, and then my advisors and other professors were uh, warning me about it <laughs> because I think they they saw me like going into a, a very unfamiliar territory. But I just thought I had to I had to go into the archives and to dig out materials about how film exhibition was organized, and that I needed to talk to people and also read more materials that that are already out there, like interviews that other people have done, or memoirs, or fictional accounts about movie going in the socialist period. And just I, I had to do them because my questions can only be answered by uh, these sources. So I did both in um, 2013 and 14 uh, as part of my dissertation research. It wasn't uh, very well planned at all. It's kind of done in this haphazard way. And over the years, I've thought so many times that I need to go back and uh, go read more and go talk to more people. And then COVID happened, <laughs> so uh, that all all those plans just like went out of the window. Um, but uh, I, I think 
a part of me also knows that there will always be cracks.、Uh, no matter how much more sources you look at, there are always things that we won't be able to find out. So, given what I did dig up, and、um, I think I, I think I intentionally maintained the gaps. Between these two sets of materials, right? They they don't answer to each other. The government sources, they they don't get a response from audience testimonies. So, for example, there was so much in、uh, government documents or trade journals for project projectionists that talk about how the projectionist should conduct propaganda at film screenings. Right. And in addition to、um, lecturing throughout the film screening, they were supposed to do a slide projection and all, all these other things. But when I tried to find out more from audiences about their reactions to all these methods, oftentimes the response I got was simply,、oh, "They, they don't remember. They don't remember whether any of these things happened."、Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, I actually I talked to、um, Professor Jie Li from、uh, Harvard, who also worked on same topic, and also I think、uh, her book is also coming out soon.、Uh, and and she she gave me an explanation that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. That is, maybe the measures described in these documents and the audiences I talked to, they were not of the same generation. Right, so of course they they didn't match, right? But at the time, I I I didn't know. So what what I saw was this big gap between these kind of materials, and furthermore, there also are gaps between published audience accounts that you can find in old film magazines or newspapers from the fifties, sixties, the Mao area, where people talk about their、uh, reactions to films. And how they talk about films nowadays, right? The the later testimonies, and these two types of materials, they also don't come together. There's such big contrast between them. In the older materials,、um, the author often talk about、uh, how film changed them, how they motivate them to be more revolutionary. Whereas nowadays, when I talk to audience members, initially I was hoping for. Very detailed reactions to films, and maybe even reactions to certain scenes. Like I remember this part, and I felt so moved, and etc.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing of that sort.、Uh, very, very little.、Uh, mostly people don't remember much from the films, but they do remember、uh, their routines,、uh, how, they, how they went to the films, and what they did、uh, on an everyday level, and certain significant incidents. Like one memorable, really memorable、uh, interviewee for me is a worker that talk about how、uh, his wife went into labor while he was watching a movie in the workers' clubs. So there are a lot of these like very interesting and at first sight almost trivial、uh, incidents.、Nice. So the two type of sources became.、Um, Dual functional. Like on, on the one hand, they were methods or they were tools for me to research film exhibition and movie going. On the other hand, they also pose questions that require explanation. Like how come there were such gaps? So there were both the motive behind the inquiry and also the methods for conducting the research. And in the end,、uh, I I was happy with what I came up with, and simply that film exhibition is 
a complex system that involves multiple interfaces, and then there's no telling which kind of interfaces the audience may pay attention to, right? Maybe what the exhibitors or film projectionists intend the audience to pay attention to, they weren't paying attention at all. <laughs> um, but they were paying attention to um, other things like the n- natural environment at open air screenings. So I think the two uh, kinds of uh, materials really uh, bring out a lot of the core arguments that I was trying to make. They certainly do, for sure. And you know, you you mentioned a few a few words such as interface, and you know, I was very very. Excited and curious about it, and I thought, yes, I'm going to ask you about that. And you know, because I saw it as a as a key term in in the book, and I was wondering, you know, how um, these um, these keywords uh, directly interact with the subject at hand, like film exhibition. Um, and here, I'm thinking, you know, the keywords I'm thinking about: interface, spectatorship, memory versus or and right collective. Um, so individual memory and collective memory. Um, and, you know, whether these, um, you know, interact in one way or they don't, or how do, do you see them uh, play out? This is actually a hard question to uh, answer. I feel I, I need to <laughs> bring out a paper and start drawing to, to map out the relationship. So I think I'll, I'll just pick and choose <laughs> what, I, sure, uh, read, uh, what I feel like answering the most. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I'll focus, I'll talk about interface a little bit and then move on to memory. Mm-hmm. The, the word interface uh, for a lot of people, maybe it will evoke more of uh, like computer science or media studies or new media. Uh, I had to confess that I did borrow the term from these more kind of contemporary media phenomena to talk about something that was older. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I did that is not because I, I was trying to kind of find what's new in older phenomena, right? To to bring, say, new media back into old media. Uh, I don't think I was thinking that far. I simply gravitated toward interface because every time I, I try to describe what I was trying to say, that word just came out. And it feels like the easiest way for me to refer to oh all these things that are not the film but also present at film screening. Right? It it it's, it it can go a little bit longer. Uh, so I use interface in broad terms, like very broad terms, and it really it it just refers to um, points or boundaries of interaction between two things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once once introduce that and it. It's interesting to see how film exhibition suddenly is decentered from the film, and and you can see what else is going on at the exhibition. So I thought it was a kind of a very quick way for me to um, redirect the attention uh, to um, all these other elements that are off screen. Sure, uh, I've got some good feedback on the word already, so <laughs> I'm happy about it. Um, and memory. Uh, collective memory and another word uh, that is nostalgia, they are really tricky to deal with because as a medium of knowledge, memory, sometimes it's, it's a necessity because we have to rely on memory to get the information. In the case of socialist China, that is especially so because 
a lot of the content that people remember was not allowed to be publicly uh, manifested. Right? A lot of these like private thoughts or experiences, because they didn't conform to the state-sanctioned or the ideologically correct way of doing things, they couldn't be articulated during the time period that I'm interested in, and they could only surface later on. So to get certain perspectives and to get certain stories, memory is the only way to reach that. And a lot of the research on collective memory and the relationship between memory and history, they especially emphasize how memory as a historical tool is especially valuable for learning about marginalized social groups, right? Who, who didn't get the, a say in office, official history often. The memory is also very unreliable and it's unstable. It changes over time. It gets impacted by whatever that's going on in the present in which people remember. In, in worst case scenarios, it can outright lie about the past. So once memory is introduced, it immediately changes a question about the past to one about the relationship between the present and the past. So even so, even if I, I wasn't intending on paying that much attention to post-socialist discourses, I had to, right? because, because I introduced memory. And then once I do that, I had to consider how socialist movie-going is reconstructed in post-socialist conditions, and especially through the lens of nostalgia. And nostalgia was both um, collectively and spontaneously uh, produced, but it's also very commercial sometimes, right? It can be, become, can be something that, that get pack, repackaged and sold to people. And that complicates matters even more. So if I want to address a question like uh, discomfort, uh, people remember certain discomforts about open-air screenings very fondly, then to what extent does that have to do with the present condition? To what extent it has to do with the past conditions? It, it just makes things very murky. Um, meanwhile, I, I also wonder like, on, a, on a broader scale whether we can actually talk about spectatorship or movie-going without talking about memory, like, assuming that there is a separation. But, but think about it. Like, as soon as we, even when we, when we talk about okay, uh, um, the experience of a movie in the moment, like, very rarely we can actually talk about the reception in the moment. And once, as soon as the movie is over and we're talking about the reception process, it's already in the past. So it's already involved memory. It may be more uh, short-term memory, but it's still it, it's still memory. And also, when people theorize about uh, cinema and what cinema is, like, often they also refer to things that also have to do with their own memories of movie going. Uh, I, when Susan Sontag mentions like the decay of cinema, and and I quote her in my introduction. The decay is in comparison to the kind of cinema that she was familiar with. So it's rooted in memory. So I've been thinking lately whether 
there there's a point to be made about actually further highlighting memory in uh, discussions about spectatorship in general and maybe in film theory in general. Sure, and you know, as I as I listened to to you speak, and of course, when I was reading the book, I was also thinking that right. It, it, uh, along the lines that you mentioned that, you know, present material conditions do influence the formation of and changing of, right, memory about past material conditions. And, you know, the implicit or explicit comparison that, you know, we kind of have between present and past and maybe with the future as well, um, influences the ways in which memory appears or becomes clear or murkier or, you know, how, how it stays with us in a way. So, I, I mean, I totally agree with you that there is an argument to, to be made there, specifically when we're talking about such a slippery concept and um, something that continuously forms itself and others, right? Um, so, yeah, I think I, I find that very fascinating. And, uh, you know, I think it also connects to, to space in a way, right? Like the, the space that you mentioned where the films were projected. And I think there's also something to be said for, you know, for that in relation to the first chapter that is entitled Space <laughs> and uh, focuses exactly on this uh, on, on this particular concept to provide an overview of the socialist film exhibition system. And um, during the socialist era, people witnessed cinemas move, right, from um, into cultural halls and clubs and the use of propaganda as a structuring mechanism for different locations as well as in different locations. So, you know, my question here uh, was, like, how have the politics and the culture of space influenced the transformation of cinema and the experience of going to the movies, um, you know, in, in this particular framework that you you, you drew out for us? Mm. Uh, the, the politics of space, in a nutshell, simply says the space is not neutral. Right. Space always has a meaning to it. The location itself has symbolic meaning, and the particular spatial configuration of a place it also generates particular material and ideological experiences. Right. And here with the, the chapters, we're getting into the specific uh, interfaces and uh, the space here. Uh, it really for the new socialist regime. They were very sensitive to uh, the the meaning or the messages that the old movie theaters were sending. I talk about in this chapter how the old movie theaters were considered too urban, too bourgeois, and too foreign. Uh, they just weren't the right place to show films in the new socialist regime. And what was the right message? What was the correct message that uh, a location for film screening need to send? I zero in on this slogan of serving workers, peasants, and uh, soldiers. Uh, is that I encountered that a lot in uh, writings in film journals at a time, and of, as well as in like just uh, artistic and cultural theory in general. In the socialist period, it's all revolved around serving workers, peasants, soldiers, and the politics here. And uh, one thing that I want to en- emphasize is, yes, the propaganda, political education was definitely one purpose of socialist um, artistic culture. But at the same time, another thing to emphasize is how cinema or other arts were supposed to provide mass entertainment for people. 
right? They need to serve the masses rather than the elites. And that, first of all, is an access issue, right? Who, who get to see the films and who can in, enter a film screening space. So based on this principle of serving worker, peasants, and soldiers, I talk about the um, three main uh, venues for socialist film exhibition system. Um, the first one is the movie theater, but it's, it was reformed movie theater that evinced socialist messages rather than the older, more imperialist messages. And two types of new venues or exhibition outlets, the workers' cultural halls and workers' clubs, where workers could go for watching movies, dancing, and doing a lot of other recreational activities. And in the vast rural area, there would be uh, mobile film projection teams that bring films into uh, remote areas that didn't have access to film other ways. And Given the material conditions back then, right, the lack of infrastructure, uh, the mobile team pre- presented themselves as the easiest solution than, say, building a small theater in a rural village. And as a result of this process of reform and relocation, moviegoing became more accessible, although different regions definitely had a varied degree of access. Uh, urban centers still were, were more privileged. You get to see more. The uh, film weeks or special screenings those are, only took place in urban centers, whereas in rural areas, uh, Oftentimes, there wasn't a fixed timetable when film would have been available. Uh, They also got uh, worse uh, quality film copies. And and the impact of this is also uh, film watching movies became everyday experience. It became a communal experience because a lot of these venues were right located in uh, communities rather than out in the urban center. Uh, and then in in this part, I also also talk uh, about how the space was intentionally curated to serve propaganda purposes. Right, and you know, I'm I'm also thinking space. Um, and I think you you mentioned at some point, right? So who's sitting next to who, and you know, like whether you know the 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 weather, and you know these kind of the time of of the projection and everything does play into. You know that they all have a purpose, and you know we can see this unfolding way better in the chapter than I'm, I'm you know, clumsily describing right now. So, um, you know, and I, there's also this type of uh, there's a type of labor, and you go into to this in chapter two, um, and the labor specifically that the projectionists did, right? And I think the mm-hmm. figure of the projectionist is very very important in this chapter, but also for for the book as a whole. Um, so here I was very curious to to know more about their stories uh, and, you know, um, how have their bodies become integral part of the movie-going experience, you know, whether there's particular examples that you, you would like to bring up here. You know, I was just very curious about all of this. Yeah, sure. Uh, there were indeed many stories about the film projectionists. Um, if you look at uh, whether it's major newspapers like People's Daily or popular film magazines like Da Zhong Dianying, so 
popular cinema or math cinema,、uh, mm-hmm. or more specialized trade journals intended for film projectionists. There, there were there were just a lot of stories about the projectionists, and this in itself is very significant because we don't usually think about、uh, the projectionists, whether in China or in、uh, other parts of the world. Traditionally, projectionists were just this hidden figure in the booth.、Yeah. Uh, when we when we go to movie theaters, we don't. Come into contact with projectionists. We don't see them, and nowadays with the transition to digital cinema, we don't even need them.、Uh, in, in in a lot of places, very sadly.、Yeah. So so all of this just make the fact that the projectionists were high profile public figures in the Mao area、uh, extra significant. And、um, what what this does. Like all the publicity that they got through articles, drawings, and photos, and also newsreel. There were some newsreels dedicated to certain projection teams. What all the what what all of this did was they、uh, laid bare the work of the projectionists for everybody to see, and we we could see、uh, what kind of work. They needed to do、uh, the different kinds of labor that were involved.、Uh, of course, there was technical labor. Labor, right? Projectionists need to know how to operate the the machines, and believe me, that's not easy. Because I I、uh, purchased uh, like old uh, projection manuals from websites like Kung Fu Zi, and I tried to read them. It's actually really hard. Because <laughs> it's a technical profession,、uh, mm. even though sometimes, like like in my book,、uh, I write more about、uh, their manual labor, what, what they did in, in propaganda. But it, it,、yeah. we should be reminded that their profession was first of all a technical profession. They needed to know how to operate machines, and、mm. often for a rural mobile projectionist, they also needed to learn how to、uh, use power generators because they had to bring everything. With them,、yeah. and they need to they need to know、uh, some basics about how to fix these machines, because they were they were on their own, right? They they could not bring additional people or send the machines to to somewhere else to to get fixed. Yeah, and、um, yeah, and then intellectual labor、um, that 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 gets expanded on more in、uh, chapter three. Yeah, in in this chapter, in the chapter two,、um, that's titled labor. It's actually the manual labor that that is foregrounded. That's the focus, and also more specifically,、uh, I focus on one type of writing. That is, narratives that talk about the projectionists traveling on the road. So in this case, yeah, rural projectionists, and and the narrative is always very consistent. They they had to travel to remote areas, and because of the lack of infrastructure, they often have to travel by foot.、Uh, there will be a very tremendous difficulties that they needed to overcome. Whether it would be、uh, like the slope of leeches that would bite them, or a very steep cliff. And they had to figure out how to kind of bring up the machine. I, I think, if I remember correctly, in some cases they had to take things apart because、uh, otherwise the、uh, projector or generator is just too clunky. So they had to take it apart and, and move the parts and then reassemble them. So they had to overcome all these difficulties and all the bodily fatigues and、uh, hunger and by、right, having to sleep、uh, out in the wild, 
but but always they would arrive um, and the villagers will, will come receive them with enthusiasm. They'll be so happy that the projection team is finally here. And, and I, I found it interesting that there was such abundance of this type of narrative. So I made uh, two main observations in the chapter. So for one, I talk about how the labor actually became uh, infrastructural. It became infrastructure for film distri- distribution, and because there was no other other infrastructure alternatives, the the system had to rely on the manual labor of projectionists to function. But at the same time, it also became a site of propaganda, because in all these narratives, the projectionists are essentially portrayed as model laborers. For people to admire and to even emulate, I one thing I don't know is like how these kind of reading experiences, right? People reading about projectionists on newspaper or, or magazines, how these experiences would influence when they actually watch films. And I think in rural areas, the audiences would have been able to. Like look at the projectionists because projection would have been exposed, so they would have been able to see them. But for uh, urban viewers, I'm not so sure. Uh, so, so I, I guess this chapter has to be uh, looked at with this grain of salt that it only applied to uh, rural situation. It, nonetheless, the stories are amazing, and the figure right of the projectionist is so important and you know as you said like we don't think that much uh about the the the, the you know the the person um and the team right because also they mm-hmm. they were not traveling alone um they had mm-hmm. like, some help as well so i thought it was a very very important uh thing to to talk about here um and you know we we'll, we get to chapter three um and you know we talk about intellectual labor and the chapter is called uh, Multimedia, entitled Multimedia, and introduces us to the use and the importance of slide projection and the projectionist's live performances. Um, and here, you know, again, I was very, <laughs> very uh, curious, but also super enthusiastic about, oh, live performances, that is great. So, um, <laughs> and, you know, my question was, what are some of the emblematic examples and how is the concept of multimedia defining or enriching, right, the the concept of audience, memory, as well, um, as well as bringing together the first two chapters in a more intricate way. I thought it's it's kind of a pivotal moment, uh, chapters three and four um, in the book. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the the last part of the question about mm-hmm. uh, how it brings together the two chapters. Yep. Actually, in earlier versions, including an article that I published in Journal of Chinese Cinemas, Content from this chapter was in fact mixed together with the first two chapters. In that in that article that I published, I talk about um, serving worker peasant soldiers not just as a principle for the spatial organization of film exhibition, but also for the projectionist daily work. Right? They were guided by this principle in what they did. And um, and I talk about the projectionists having uh, several different roles. Like uh, there were people servants, there were propagandists, and there were also film lecturers. And then, of course, I, I don't think you can you can separate the intellectual 
and manual labor. Although they may might have occurred at a different moment in that uh, distribution and exhibition process, but they were in fact right all carried out by the same group of people. The decision to Uh, isolate the content of this chapter is purely to foreground the multimedia aspects. Right, so in here, the the protagonists, um, that is projectionists, somehow are kind of pushed to the sideline a little bit uh, to maintain the focus on the different kinds of media that were also involved in film exhibition, which went way more than uh, which. Went beyond a lot more beyond、uh, just the showing of films, at, at least in theory, or or, or per the design of、um, say the the exhibit or the projection is that in in the ideal situation as described in the、uh, sources that I had access to. So、um, when the projectionists came to、uh, rural village to show films. They were actually supposed to carry out this whole process in three parts. There was the pre-screening propaganda.、Um, this happened before the start of the film. In during this portion, they could use a slide for showing news, for making announcements, or giving the audience a synopsis of the film, introducing the characters. And also, I've read read a lot about、um, different kinds of performances that could have happened, and these are from、uh, trade journals or、um, government sources. And they talk about like using whatever form that is local to that community,、um, clapper talk or different、uh, local operas, and. Sometimes they organize sing-alongs, sing songs, and have the audience to sing together, and or just make speeches. And one example I, I start the chapter with is also one of my favorite example about this kind of live performance. This、uh, has to do with scientific education. So in this example, I talk about this、mm-hmm. team、uh, that that decides to、uh, demonstrate how to burn pests with fire. And the report is very specific about like how many pests they burned. It said three hundred. I I don't know how they <laughs> were able to count, <laughs> but <laughs> it's just so precise. And they 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 burned all these pests or insects. Uh, okay, in ten minutes, and they were performing clapper talk quite bad at the same time.、Uh, and the report also talked about everybody. Uh, feeling so mobilized afterwards, and、uh, burnt countless pests and, and ensured a big harvest.、Uh, just, just im- imagine. I think it would be very hard for us to imagine being in that screening. You thought you were going to a film screening. Well, but wait a minute. <laughs> Before you get to that part, there was something else that you need to sit through.、Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, like、um, I remember,、um, viewers. Re- Later viewers, probably from the seventies and eighties,、um, recollecting about、um, going to open air screenings during that time, seventies、uh, and eighties,、uh, they would say they would remember.、Uh, for a lot of people, this beginning part was just so boring, and sometimes they would show a newsreel film before the main feature, and people also weren't interested in that. So a lot of people probably weren't paying attention. Anyways.
and then and then the projectionist would move on to uh, showing the film. Uh, the journal, um, trade journal, spent a lot of time talking about the different skills of lecturing for the audiences, how you should make commentaries. There were also a lot of scripts published in um, a journal called Film Exhibition. And one of the most memorable ones for me is the script for Di Dao Zhan, the tunnel warfare from 1964, if I remember correctly. Uh, it really stands out because the film itself already features a very heavy-handed voiceover narration that will give you all the political lessons about, uh, say, the significance of unprotracted war uh, during that time in the Sino-Japanese War. It was very heavy-handed. It shows up all the time. And yet there is a script here providing additional lecturing at the same time. So I would be curious to see how that will play out. Uh, maybe in the future, if I if I get to uh, teach a course that's related, I can have my students uh, read a, read out loud some of these scripts, you know, together with the film, and and see how it feels. Uh, but that was supposed to be um, the best practice for them, how they were supposed to do do things. And then, of course, there was also a post screening discussion sometimes. So it, it was supposed to be this complex process um, involving multimedia interfaces that went a lot beyond the film itself. And sometimes it almost seemed like the main feature film didn't matter as much. Uh, as I said, in 1960s, it seemed like at this point, for a few years, some projection teams only showed slides. They didn't even show films anymore. And I find that to be really fascinating. Me too. And I was very interested in the um, in the reading of the script as well. And I was thinking, how, how would that actually work right like how would the attention economy function there yeah. right and, yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah well i guess it, it also function well it, it plays a role in the atmosphere right and creating some sort of atmosphere um and um you know that is particular to some some period of, of film projection and, you know, in Chapter 4, um, you, you ground a new concept, atmospheric spectatorship. And I was very interested in the, the meaning behind the cinematic mode and the memories it, it engendered um, for, for, your, for the people you interviewed. Mm, I was just thinking how uh, everything that's talked about in Chapter 3 just disappears when we get to Chapter 4. <laughs> <laughs> like everything, like the slide projection, all these different propaganda methods, they they don't show up uh, in chapter four, five, or six. Uh, <laughs> okay, maybe 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 it's um, I haven't been doing a good job <laughs> with my materials, but also it's so fascinating how so much memory, right? It doesn't the memory doesn't correspond to the design. At all, right? Uh, yeah. So okay. So in chapter four, I coined this term "atmospheric spectatorship," mm-hmm. which isn't that easy to say. <laughs> Apologies, mm-hmm. um, but I just want to I want to use it to describe a mode of cinematic experience that does not privilege the film as an object of attention. Um, but 
when when we are atmospheric spectator, we our experience is characterized by presence in this entire milieu, right? We experience this entire surroundings, and rather than just the film itself. And there are three layers that I、um, want to bring about in this chapter. In the first layer, I think it it's kind of a common sense. Like、when we go to a place, a restaurant, or mu- museum, or movie theater, we we notice the atmosphere.、Right? That's something that we would talk about in our dirt, our daily life.、Uh, that's something we would comment on. And then also maybe you find sometimes it's hard to really explain to people what that atmosphere feels like and say it's good. But if you want to、yeah. break it down and really describe it, it can get it can get very hard. I think really great authors can do that, but it's. Not that easy to describe this the atmosphere of a place because it involves so many different factors, right? And the material conditions, the temperature, what what you hear in the moment, what you see, everything amount to an atmosphere.、Yeah. So on this general level, whenever we talk about film spectatorship, or even when we talk about watching the film at home online, there's always an atmosphere involved. It's always there. The thing is just simply that we don't usually pay attention to it as much, unlike in open air screenings. In open air screenings, the atmosphere does get more privileged. It's because、uh, there are a lot of things, other factors that interfere with people's ability to engage with the film. In this chapter, I talk about、uh, open air screenings as this paradigm characterized by. Openness and contingency in an open environment. Sometimes people cannot hear the sound very well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So sometimes maybe if you if you if you come late to open air screening and have to stand in the back, you can't see very well. You can't、yeah. hear very well.、Yeah. There might be a big gust of wind,、uh, where it suddenly starts to rain.、Uh, you might decide to stay behind if the projectionist. Stay behind to show the film,、um, but just imagine what I feel, what it might feel like in that environment, having to deal with all kinds of、uh, interruptions and all kinds of noises. And people next to you probably they know each other, so they might talk, and you might you you might have to jump in that conversation at some point too. So there are so many inter- interruptions, and the result of that is、um, when people think back about open air screenings, they tend to focus their recollections on this overall atmosphere. And so, specifically, oh, I need to take a moment, <coughs> have some water. So, because of the difficulty to concentrate on film, and also the nature of long term memory. When people talk about open air screenings、uh, nowadays, they they often tend to focus not on what happened in the film. It's very hard to remember all the details. So instead, there will be a lot of discussions about just the overall atmosphere. And in the chapter, I actually talk about、uh, just two kinds of popular discourses around the atmosphere of open air screenings. So one is 看热闹 Uh, that's a word. That's a phrase that I 
heard a lot in my interviews and also noticed in other occasions and people use that too. It's very hard to translate. now literally means hot and noisy. Yeah. And people use now, right? They they go just to be in that situation. I, I read about uh, the more specific meanings of this term. Uh, but I, I think in a nutshell, when people use this term to describe their movie-going experience, they were acknowledging that they, um, for one, they could have just been going because it's something that everybody was doing, right? So they want to be part of it. It's it's, it's festive and a, it, it has this uh, connection with previous Ruanao uh, situations in rural areas like opera performances. So you would go there just for experiencing the atmosphere. Uh, and also they, they could also be talking about their kind of unwillingness or inability to uh, engage with film that deeply. And they're okay with that. Uh, they don't see it as a, a, a drawback. Some intellectuals in China have been very critical about this onlooker culture, right? But I think in everyday language, and a lot of people are perfectly okay with just kan uh, And then mm. in another type of discourse, uh, people will associate open air screenings with uh, kind of native place literature the culture of community is also kind of embed the open air screenings within a lot of lyrical descriptions of the rural scenery and what it's like to be in harmony with nature and um, the the community. Uh, a lot of these articles could be found online, right? In the age of social media, a lot of blogs, uh, they, they just like, rehash these terms and quite a lot. And, and this I link with um, this post-socialist economic development and how that make, feel, make people feel they have somehow uh, lost this imagined native place. And in either case, whether like Ruo now were uh, reminiscence of the lyrical atmosphere of uh, open air cinema, it, both cases were kind of depoliticized. It depends on how you define politics, but it's depoliticized in the sense that it's a mode of spectatorship that didn't center on socialist ideology or even the content of the film at all. Right, and then I think once once we we accept that, we also get to um, you know engage more with the atmosphere itself, as you as you mentioned, right, and to with with what's happening between people and you know their their relating of their experience in a way that is more personal and more um, I guess in the moment of the memory um, than. Mm you know, thinking about the overarching political framework or, you know, the, the goal, intended goal of, of the, the projection. And um, I found that fascinating to to talk to people as you did and to um, actually engage with their recounting of the atmosphere um, because mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't do that too often. And even, you know, even today, we don't talk that much about that type of, of atmosphere 
and what creates it, right? And sometimes it's it's a happy memory, and sometimes it's not. And you you do get to that um, to in in chapter five entitled discomfort. Uh, when you take into serious consideration the embodied experience of watching movies in less than ideal conditions, um, for example, you know, high or low temperatures or while surrounded by mosquitoes. And, you know, in my opinion, I thought that is horrible. <laughs> Just mosquitoes. <are> <laughs> um, but, you know, um, if, we, if we take discomfort as part of the socialist structure of feelings, then I wanted to know more about its role in the collective memory formation process and maybe its relation to labor and atmosphere itself. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think uh, mosquito bites will be horrible. And then yeah. there's also one story that I think I also mentioned in chapter two in relation to labor is about this uh, projectionist from Heilongjiang, the, the, north, the most north province in China that was really cold in winter and this projectionist was told to continue uh, deliver films in uh, winter and to show films in winter I mean I, even if people I, I okay now I, I don't remember whether whether they were able to show it inside or outside I would guess probably outside and in that case, how cold would that be and how uncomfortable would that be? Wow. Uh, it's so hard to imagine uh, sitting outside in winter watching a movie. And the funniest part about that uh, report is the film that they were asked to show in the coldest winter was actually called The Story of Summer. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I just had to share that. <laughs> I love that. Love that story. Um, okay, so but the the counterintuitiveness is was exactly what drew me to this topic, because uh, I I encountered um, people's uh, testimonies where they describe these uh, different kinds of bodily challenges in detail. And in the end, nobody was saying, oh, I hated going to the movies because it was so tiring. I had to walk two hours to, to get there. Or, oh, it was too cold and too uncomfortable. I didn't have a place to sit. And nobody's saying I hated movies because of that. Everybody was saying, or everybody who remember these uh, details would also say, uh, but that made made the experience uh, special. It gave it a special kind of feeling to it. Uh, in contrast, uh, at least one viewer that I quote in the chapter, he specific uh, he explicitly talks about it, and he says nowadays all the uh, luxurious movie theaters with air conditioning and comfortable sofa chair. Uh, they provide all this material comfort and abundance, but somehow it just they doesn't have that feeling anymore. So I found that to be fascinating to unpack and how to understand this. 
And I have to say, this chapter for me is the most speculative chapter <laughs> among um, um among all the chapters in the book because I I made this connection between uh, discomfort in movie going and how viewers might have look at this experience through revolutionaries about struggle and particularly about torture and because of this structure of feeling. They were able to derive some kind of spiritual elevation from the discomfort.、Uh, it, I just found that that train of connection to me,、um, there is a little bit of lack of evidence. I, I wish somebody had said that out loud, <laughs> so 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 I can yeah you know, just make just make that connection、uh, very solid. But but at this moment, it, it remained a little bit speculative. I I. Did it myself.、Uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully, I can.、Um, my dream is to、uh, publish a Chinese translation of this book. So some of the viewers that I interviewed and and the the generations of people that I talk about can have a chance to actually read it and tell me, you know, whether I get things right or not. Right.、Uh, okay. So I don't I don't remember what I want to say next. <laughs>、um, <laughs> um, oh, I, I, uh, the, the, the end. Uh, uh, yes, I, I think the、um, the the trick of this again is going back to the relationship between past and present. Right, we cannot understand the contemporary discourses of past discomfort without resorting to what has happened. In the post-socialist period, and what people see as different now, especially what they think are are lost right now. So, so by associating discomfort at、uh, screenings with some kind of pleasure, they are mourning、um, a different moral order that that no longer exists. And、um, I think you asked me to make a connection between discomfort to labor and atmosphere.、Uh, that's that's a great question that I need to think more about. But for the moment,、uh, I think I can say for one,、uh, enduring discomfort that's a kind of labor too.、Mm-hmm. I think, with regard to new media, there has been a lot of discussion about how consumers right, are becoming prosumers. So, so we are in fact putting in our labor to get exploited by the big big tech companies, and the labor aspect is、uh, really foregrounded in、uh, the the contemporary context. But、uh, looking at These、uh, audiences, right, walking for、uh, long distance to get to a movie, and sometimes have to stand through it. That that's a form of labor as well. And then uh, uh, another point I can make is how I feel the last three chapters in the book they they offer they actually offer very different entry. Into the socialist movie-going experience and reveal very different facets of it.、Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to emphasize that、uh, this experience isn't just one thing. Right?、Uh, people, different social groups, probably have had very different experiences at a time.、Um, children, for example. Actually, rely a lot on people who were children at a time, and、um, who tend to be the most passionate 
in remembering their movie-going experiences. I, I talk a little bit of why I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do rely a lot on um, children. Um, how, how do I say it? Not children's memory. Like pe- people remembering their childhood. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, other groups, uh, women, for example, working women, um, all these groups might have very different experiences. And every individual was different as well. So uh, I think these have to be considered as just different facets, right? This different aspects, and and they they by no means represent, you know, all the experiences that are out there. I I just want to emphasize that. Right, absolutely, and I think you know it it definitely speaks to to the you know plurivalent um, type of experiences and and perception of discomfort, perception of the atmosphere, right as as each of us will will read the room differently or will read a, a projection mm-hmm. uh, differently yeah. and, you know, engage with materiality, engage with our neighbors, you know, seat neighbors or, you know, like projection neighbors or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it definitely offers, I think, uh, you know, that each chapter offers a way into um, the, the mm-hmm. analysis, but also together, right, all the chapters provide this... Um, also an entry into the topic so it's a very um it's a very intricate way of 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 looking at at the topic itself and i think the last chapter offers yet another way of thinking about uh movie going and um Mm -hmm. it looks at the screen right so it's entitled Mm -hmm. screen and looks at the materiality of the screen um per se and here, you know, I was I was drawn to the senses and the creative processes that were involved here, and I was thinking to ask, how does this recast our understanding and portrayal of moviegoers from rural areas? Mm. It, they they had some fun, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, um, I I think the recollections that I I talk about in this chapter, they're first of all just like a lot of fun anecdotes. Uh, and people were very creative with how they were able to engage the screen. Um, paradoxically, the screen here is considered an off-screen interface because mm-hmm. although it is the material base for displaying the filmic ma- uh, image, but as an artifact, right, a spatial presence, the screen and the films that are shown on the screen is very different. So this this chapter um, does want to uh, shine the spotlight on uh, the abundance of audience memories that directly touch on the screen. <laughs> a little pun here, the touch. Uh, yeah. And then I, I talk about uh, four kinds of screen interactions. Uh, the first one involves audiences directly touching the screening apparatus, like helping the projectionist hang up the screen for outdoor screening. Um, it's all a collective process. Everybody could get involved. And the second one being uh, audiences casting hand sh- shadows onto screens. And the third one being um, the availability of the backside of the screen. A lot of people would prefer watching from the backside than the front side. Um, and then, and then that changes how the screen um, can be felt. Right? If, yeah. if the screen is at the front of the auditorium, it functions more like a portal into uh, a different world. 
But if you can go to the backside of it, the materiality of the screen is suddenly very much pronounced. Yeah. And then also there's touching of the screen as a result of film narratives. Stories such as uh, people were so angry at the landlord, uh, evil landlord, they would throw mud onto them or try to hit them. Um, just a, a lot of <clears throat> tales similar to that. And all of these uh, different interactions involve the body, uh, mobilize the body, and involve multiple senses. They happened in, I think, all kinds of audiences, but probably most particularly among children. In this chapter, I um, try to uh, come up with a new framework of interpreting these kind of behaviors. Because a more conventional lens, uh, especially with regard to people who, who are trying to uh, engage with the characters on screen, right, touching them or hitting them, um, is to kind of presume some kind of naivety, right? They, 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 they want to do that because the audience cannot figure out that what's on the screen isn't real. Right. Uh, but actually, this is inspiration from my son, <laughs> because one day I just noticed I was playing stuffed animals with him, and I was pretending to sound like one of the stuffed animals and pretend mm-hmm. I, I was the stuffed animals. And then he was about like three or four, and he just looked at me like, you know, mom, I know that's you. <laughs> he was he was not fooled at all, mm-hmm. even for a young kid. And mm-hmm. that, that just got me thinking, you know, probably they they weren't fooled by it. There there's other evidence suggesting that people knew they were watching a film and the the people on the screen weren't physically there. I go into this evidence a little bit in the chapter. Um, so instead, I propose play as uh, a new frame to think about movie going, uh, not, j- not just in terms of the act-, act of touching, but movie going as kind of a sub- subjunctive uh, sphere governed by rules. And these rules can be different according to where you are. And in rural China at a time, especially in these outdoor uh, screening environments, there weren't as many rules regulating behaviors of the viewers as in a movie theater. And that's why we we got to see all these different uh, kinds of spontaneous engagements with the screen that that would be kind of... uh, not allowed, right? <laughs> in movie theaters, if you go and try to touch the screen, some people will come and stop you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And right. And I, I thought that also the the release of emotions was was important and contributed right back to, to the atmosphere. And although, you know, as, as you, you mentioned, there is evidence suggesting that people knew, right, that the, the the film was, you know, fictional, but then um, that emotion and the release and engagement was actually very important to the whole experience, I guess, um, that the the projection of a film implied. So I, I thought that was, you know, a very, very interesting moment and maybe bonding with, with other villagers or even with the projectionist or, you know, the, the, the emotional mm-hmm. part was... was quite quite key there 
Um, but you know, we we get angry at at movies sometimes too. You yeah. know, and um, the in, I in think the- also. Um, This is a good moment to add that Mm -hmm. although this book put so much emphasis on off-screen interfaces, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, emphasizing how all these like non-filmic factors impacted the cinematic experience, but that doesn't mean uh, Chinese moviegoers weren't paying attention to films at all. Right. right. They, they there were definitely a lot of moments when <laughs> they were deeply engaging with the films and letting themselves be uh, emotionally affected by the films. And mm-hmm. maybe for the for a one person, like one day they go to uh, the open air screening, maybe the movie, the film wasn't that interesting. So they would talk to their friends. But another day, maybe. Um, it's a new film that they never watched before, and then they were so moved that they did cry, right? Like, I think all these were, were possible. So, again, um, emphasizing the plurality of moviegoing experiences. We cannot just reduce them to one thing. Mm-hmm. Sure, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think um, um, the, you know, as, as we we're kind of uh, talking about the past and the present, uh, the po- postscript uh, recognizing cinema brings us to the present time, um, and I, I'll use one of your phrases as a question here. Specifically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a bit lazy of me, but you know, allow me to do it. Um, and you know, specifically here, um, what does this past mean for our continuing reimagination of of cinema? That wasn't lazy. That is actually really smart. Uh, <laughs> my first reaction is to think, did I actually answer that in the book? <laughs> or did I just throw it out rhetorically? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. But I think there there are some some answers I can provide. Um, maybe not about what like how we should imagine cinema, but uh, just a little bit on the methodology we can use to gotcha. to think about cinema as we go on, right? The how we might able to answer this question. Yeah. And the two key phrases from from this part of the book, is, um, they are, the first one is um, the diversifying of the past, again, recognizing the plurality that existed within the past. Because um, very often when film theorists try to talk about how cinema has become in the digital age, right, they will set up this binary between past and present. And the past is often just presented as a one singular past. This was what cinema used to be, and this is what cinema is becoming. But I think what the book demonstrates is that the the past was always more than one thing. And then if we don't try to keep investigating the past to unearth its plurality, we always risk having the experiences of certain groups of people to represent everybody. Right. And the, the importance is to foreground the where when we talk about the past, the geographical dimension, right? We're talking about uh, the the past of cinema, say, here in the United States. We're talking about past of cinema in China. And these two pasts are very different pasts, but they're equally cinematic. Uh, the, the danger is to let one uh, represent cinema more than the other. 
And it has actually been the case for a long time in film theory uh, that remained uh, tend to, I don't know. Um, I, I think for, for a long time, it was Western-centric. Uh, I think it's starting to change right now um, as we speak. But um, a lot of the literature still, I mean, if you look at how film theory talk about cinema's past, it's a very particular kind of past that they are evoking. And then uh, the second key phrase in this uh, postscript is uh, family resemblance. I borrow that from Wittgenstein. And um, uh, it, it's, it's a way to, to say maybe we don't need to define cinema by any one essence. We don't need to look at cinema just as technological medium or, or as um, the, its location. Right? There, cinema is a combination of factors that may or may not be present in all situations we call cinema. It just fo- further opening up the different ways we might recognize uh, cinema in the future. And about this postscript, I also want to share uh, that I make a very unexpected connection in here between uh, a recent on Lee film from 2019 called Gemini Man and open air screenings. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I find that to be very fascinating and I really invite everyone to check it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. So um, yeah, absolutely, and I really like this this idea of of cinema being multiple things and being made out mm-hmm. of multiple things that are not a constant all the time. Um, but that particular diversity is what is very important to recognize, and then you know further um, um, you know uh, analyze and and use right for for our understanding and expanding our understanding of it. Um, but, you know, we, we've taken a lot of your time and I don't want to keep you. I know, you know, it's although, you know, it's summer, it's still very busy. So I was wondering whether you could tell us more about your current projects. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, I, I haven't figured out the second book project yet, <laughs> uh, but I, I have been working on uh, two projects that I think are interesting to mention here. Um, one is a special issue for the Journal of Chinese Cinemas that mm-hmm. actually continues the inquiry that I did in this book about um, film exhibition in 20th century China and, and Taiwan. And so in this special issue, we will look at actually more off-screen interfaces that impact a cinematic experience, like the format of cinema, uh, whether we're talking about 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter or sounds or architecture. So collectively, we will um, expand the inquiry on film exhibition across different time periods in uh, 20th century Chinese history. And then another project I've been working on is uh, a little more distant from this topic of film exhibition, but I think equally centers on media experience and how our um, senses or our modes of perception are affected by media technology. So this project focuses on documentaries or videos about um, the pandemic lockdown uh, mm-hmm. Using uh, drone technologies, and particularly, I focus on two works about Wuhan. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That's fascinating, and you know, I'm I'm looking well, forward you. to. <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward to reading um, um, all of them, <laughs> but particularly the one that deal with the the pandemic and you know the 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 Wuhan experience uh, there. And, you know, and I look forward to inviting you back to New Books Network to talk to us more about, you know, further projects, the new book and and so on. So thank you so much for for talking to us today and, you know, all 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 the luck and all the success for for what's coming. Uh, thank you, Victoria. It was great pleasure. Uh, when my second book comes out, I will for sure come back for another interview. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Joel.